If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer Skin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks. Watch tonight for the last supermoon of the year. Not to be confused with when my dad bends over to stoop the scoop. Hey, here's Scott Thompson. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, is that nice? Respect. I got records in my head. I swear I heard great balls of fire at the beginning of this. I'm just razzing you. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton. It's 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board. And, uh, or sorry, Will Weber. Will Erskine picked the song today. It's uh, Weezer's new one, Records in My Head. Uh, and, you know, have you found that? Like, whether it's during a pandemic or not, that all of a sudden you wake up and you're hearing songs in your head and you're thinking, where did that come from? Whatever. And now it's nice of Weezer to record one that now we'll remember forever. And just like one of those other earworms that we have. Uh, anyway, another great day in uh, Southern Ontario and glad to have you along. Another jam packed show coming up. Hope you hang around for it, uh, including, uh, a super moon tonight and, and the, uh, Perseids media show hour which we always talk about this time of the year because you know me i like to go up into space when things get a little hectic down here on earth and really i think it's getting that way again uh anyway so paul delaney is going to be joining us and talk about uh the super moon that uh, he's referring to uh not the one that um my son was referring to also a new poll from leger 360 giving us insight on uh where we are now with this pandemic and you know i love the polls in case you haven't noticed on the on the show we love the polls because it's a gauge and where your head's at, what you're thinking. The average Canadian, Ontarian, Hamiltonian, where your head's at. So we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Oh, yeah, and Wonderland's coming in to chat about uh, this new ride that's coming. Great to see that places like this that obviously suffered greatly during the pandemic are now making a comeback, and people are interested. They want to get out. They want to play, and uh, that's good to hear. All right, uh, let's get to the uh, Canadian healthcare system because it seems to be the go-to topic of the day today, and already it's starting to frustrate me, and I'm sure it's trying. It's starting to frustrate you as well. Or <laughs> maybe you bailed on this one long ago. Um, and, and again, we had. Um, uh, the head of the Canadian, uh, Dr. Catherine Smart, Canadian Medical Association, and she gave us like five things that could be done. And I noticed that, um, uh, by goodness, it's in all the media today, uh, including both at the provincial level and at the federal level. So uh, let's get her done. And yeah, it is that easy because what I'm seeing now come about is reminding me of the teachers' unions and the government's fighting Every year, there's a contract renewal. Uh, and again, I, I don't mean to draw comparisons in any way. Um, you know, we can't uh, thank our healthcare staff enough, what they've done, what they've endured, what they've had to put up with. Uh, they need to be rewarded. They need to be compensated. They need to be tra- treated fa- fairly. They need to be able to work in a system that's working. Uh, but let's get it fixed instead of making this into a, well, um, uh, uh, an educational contract time, which comes around every three years, because that's what I'm starting to hear. I'm starting to hear less and less about fixing the system and more about, and more and more about what I want. 
Uh, here's an interesting uh, clip from our, um, our health minister, Sylvia Jones, on what she said in regard to privatization, uh, which is a bad word here, just like build is, um, yet it's already in our system. But what does it mean? Here's an explanation, hopefully. Look, we've always had a public health care system in the province of Ontario, and we will continue to. Are we looking at options? Absolutely. There are jurisdictions in other parts of Canada, in the world, that have other opportunities that we're going to look at. And all of those suggestions are being considered and studied by our ministry to make sure that as the suggestions come forward, again, I will say they don't impact unduly another part of the uh, health care continuum. Is there more room for profit? to be taken out of the healthcare system as well. What there's room for in the healthcare system is innovation. So we have some amazing opportunities. You know, we talked about in the house, uh, sick kids. Fourth in, in the world in terms of providing world-class services. That's innovation. That's allowing sick kids and organizations like the University Health Network to do what they do best. All right, so that's uh, Sylvia Jones, the health minister. And, and again, to me, this is sounding like it's becoming a labor negotiation. And that's not what this should be about. This should be about fixing the health care system. And the you know four or five points that Dr. Catherine Smart said yesterday on the show and is in all the media today about uh, what you know some basic things that can be done to fix the system. And again, I keep going back and harping at the 50% health care uh, that came, the that came from the federal government that are no longer there. She also pointed out we pay some of the highest prices per capita for health care and we're getting the least amount of service. It's an inefficient system. It's a broken system. And there's a lot of people provincially hammering away at the politics of the day, which is just another Band-Aid solution. We have been down this road before. It is time to fix the system from the top down and stop looking for provincial Band-Aid solutions or whatever the, you know the union uh, uh, mentality is of the day. We do not want this to turn into a labor dispute. We want it to turn into a situation which creates better health care for all Canadians, including Ontarians and Hamiltonians. Uh, hopefully, that's the mature adult discussion we're going to have. Uh, you know me, as soon as life gets a little hectic down here, uh, I head off into space because, you know, it's just so much calmer and more beautiful up there. Uh, so I'm out taking the dog for a walk last night, and oh, there it is, this giant honking moon uh, staring over my neighbor's house. Uh, it almost reminded me of uh, Halloween uh, sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, it's a Sturgeon super moon, and also the start of the Perseid media shower, which I believe we talk about every year uh, with Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University. He is with us now. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm indeed, Scott. Always nice to chat with you. So tell everybody what a supermoon is and what is a sturgeon supermoon? What does that mean? <laughs> Lots of different labels. Okay, so first and foremost, it's a full moon and it is full tonight. And as you saw last night, big and bright. The supermoon aspect simply means that it is a little closer to the Earth the moon in its orbit around the Earth. It's a little closer than normal, which means, of course, its apparent size is a little larger. And if its apparent size is a little larger, its apparent brightness is a little brighter. So it's a bit bigger and it's a bit brighter. And when it's close to the horizon, it looks really big and bright and so on. So that's what's happening tonight. 
the name sturgeon is one of the, the classical names for the full moon of August. So it's nothing to do with it being super. It just is the full moon of August. Basically, it means for those folks here in uh, the, the Great Lakes region that the fish are running. And so there's a, a bountiful supply of sturgeon available in the Great Lakes. So it's in reference to, if you will, the natural environment. And of course, next month is harvest moon. And then we've got um, hunter's moon and things along those lines, all associated with nature. So uh, on that note, Paul, how does having a bright moon, a huge moon like that in the sky on a summer's night, how does it affect the fish in the sea or the lakes or the animals that are wandering around the forest? What does it change? And even us. I mean, we always hear that full moons bring out, you know, the fun side of people in some cases. What it, it, does this affect us in any way? Well, yeah, I, a good question. There's been debate about this literally for as long as the moon has been in the sky. When we look at the statistics, police statistics and um, uh, emergency room statistics, there is no difference between the full moon and, say, the first quarter or the new moon. Uh, we can manage to get ourselves into trouble at any phase of the moon, I guess, is the bottom line to that. Uh, certainly when the moon is nice and bright, it does allow for greater activity, shall we say, of wildlife. So there probably is an increased level of activity in the forests. Although, of course, you know, if you're a small little animal, that's probably the time to hide because it makes you a little more of a target. I really don't know is the best answer I can give you scott but certainly when the moon is out and it's big and as bright as it is all night tonight uh there is certainly from my perspective more astronomical activity i don't know whether you want to call us wild animals or not but there's certainly more astronomers out and about does it affect tides differently in any way no the uh, tides are uh, a rhythmic associated with where the moon is with respect to the earth so it doesn't matter what the phase is Although I hasten to add that the, when the moon and the sun are in an alignment, either in the uh, new moon phase or the full moon phase, the tides, generally speaking, are larger. That's, that, that is just a function of the gravitational pulls adding, whereas when the moon is at first quarter and third quarter, the gravitational pull from the moon and the sun sort of tend to balance out and the high tides and low tides are much less extreme. So in that sense... Yes, full moon and new moon do increase tidal action. So what are we going to see tonight as far as it looked pretty big last night, So, and obviously very low at, at one point early in the evening. Uh, how does that affect uh, watching uh, a media shower? Uh, not for the positive, <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, the moon, when it is uh, at full, is this huge natural light polluter. Uh, and if you're not looking at the moon, of course, everything else pales, so as to speak. So the Perseid meteor shower or any meteor shower has a range of brightnesses. So the smaller faint shooting stars versus the larger bright bolides. When the full moon is out, the fainter meteors, the fainter shooting stars will be lost in the moon's glare. So the moon rises tonight at sunset. Uh, so anybody who wants, you know, the photobombing opportunity, that's the time. Sunset around about nine o'clock uh, because the moon will be rising between houses and trees and you, you get great photo ops. But from the Perseid meteor shower's point of view, if you're planning to observe it, and I do recommend it later in the evening after midnight if you can, position yourself such that the moon is at your back. So you actually can't see mm. the moon when you're looking at the sky. That might be a bit of a challenge. But that at least 
uh, protects your dark adaption and gives you the best chance of seeing as many meteors in the sky as is practical. So will it be a lighter year? Not lighter as far as the amount of meteors but, uh, that go, but the, <laughs> the amount that you will see because of this uh, large moon, or will it faint enough? Uh, f- uh, will, it, will it be faint enough at night later in the evening that it, it won't matter? No, unfortunately, because the moon will be up literally all night tonight and essentially all night tomorrow night as well. And certainly in the morning hours when the meteor shower will be more evident, you will see less activity this year. But as I said, the the Perseids have a habit of producing some really bright bolides, some really bright fireballs, and they, of course, will break through this natural light pollution. So it will still be a good show, but if you are counting meteors this year, instead of sort of somewhere in the vicinity of 100 per hour in the wee small hours, you know, you probably will be cut in half. All right, there you have it. All the more reason to look up this weekend, a Sturgeon Supermoon and the Perseids Media Shower all peaking uh, this weekend. Paul Delaney with us, Professor of Astronomy, York University. Always fun. Thanks for the time, Paul. Be well. Take care, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, we've been talking about going back to work for a, for a while. I remember like last Christmas. I think it was last Christmas. It's all kind of a blur to me now. Um, I, I remember we did the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope thing, and it was like it was hopeful for all of us that things were returning to normal. And, you know, I saw employees I haven't seen in two years, and uh, we all thought we were going back in January, and then Omicron hit, and uh, there you go. But it looks like this fall, I don't know, that things are... Uh, um, um, I'm not going to say going back to normal, but whatever the new normal is. And a lot more uh, places are talking about uh, this fall and, and using that as a starting point. Two new surveys from Leger, uh, Leger 360, giving us insight on how North Americans feel. These are both Canadian numbers and American numbers to compare each other. And they're not really that different in, uh, in most cases, both on returning to work and the downtown cores of major cities and how this has all affected them. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive VP at Leger's Winnipeg office, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I am keeping well, Scott. And summer's going by a little too fast. I hope things are good with you. Oh, I hear you. I hear you exactly. Uh, with that, the fall coming, and many are talking about uh, heading back. Where are our heads on this? Have they changed over the course of the pandemic? Um, what can we expect? Well, I'd say uh, there, there's there's been a bit of change, and a few more people back, uh, you know, drifting back to the office, but. But there's still, uh, you know, a, a large percent that are still working from home at least a day or two a week. When uh, we asked the question, at least like just 43 percent of Canadians said that they're working at least, uh, you know, a day or two a week at home um, with uh, a large percent, 20 over 21 percent saying they work uh, almost every every day at home. So so there's a there's a I'd say there's been some return to the office, but it's, it hasn't been a stampede. Do you think uh, there will be a stampede or and, and you know, here, here's a deeper question. Do we even know what this is going to look like? I mean, can we predict what it's going to look like? I, I think it's it's a little tough to predict. I think what you know, and this is a little less on the survey data, a little bit more on sort of some of the anecdotal and some of the business people I, uh, you know, work and speak with on a regular basis, the 
I think you're, you're starting to get some employers who are getting a bit more, uh, I'd say, uh, you know, eager to get staff back in the office more regularly. In part, some, some employers are, are paying some significant real estate, uh, uh, you know, rental on, on some property that they like to see more used. Um, but they're balancing that with not wanting to push uh, a workforce that, quite frankly, is pretty comfortable at home. Um, you know, we asked a question, a hypothetical, if your employer, to, the, to those people, uh, to those 43%, Scott, that said they're still working at home at least a day a week, uh, we asked that a question to them. If your employer asked you to return to the office immediately, uh, what would you do? Um, just under half, 44% said, well, I'd suck it up and get back to the office. Uh, 28% said they'd go back to the office, but they'd start looking right away for a, for another job. And 10% said they'd, they'd quit. They wouldn't go back. They would, mm. they would say that's it. Now, take it for a survey question, whether or not push comes to shove, that happens. But I think you see a bit of a, a game, or not a game, but a bit of a situation where employers would like maybe to push a bit more, but they're cautious about not wanting to push push staff uh, out the door potentially. You can totally see how retention is, is becoming an issue here and, and employers are are being very cautious about this. But on the other hand, how much does performance play a part in this? Because, you know, many have increased performance as a result sure. of being at home. So um, is it all about bringing everybody back to work? Is How much of this is based on uh, performance, uh, retention, or even just the way it used to be? Yeah, I think, you know, look, I think a lot of, uh, you, you raise a great point in terms of performance. Uh, I've also heard that, that uh, you know, there's managers and, and uh, you know, making cases to, to you know, senior staff and, and owners to say, I hear what you say about wanting people back, but we're getting more out of our group, uh, yeah. whether at home. They're, we get a longer work day. Um, I haven't, you know, we're not missing anything in terms of, um, you know, deadlines and, and uh, you know, client uh, account management. So, so for sure, that's, that's got to factor in to say, are, are we just bringing them back? just for to to because we want to go back to the way it was pre-pandemic i think you have to i think businesses have to be a bit more sophisticated in that that assessment before they make that call and you know you bring up a very valid point because a boss will ask an employee to come back and the first question will be well why and what's that yeah. answer going to be? Is the answer going to be, well, we need you to do the work here? Well, if they've been working for home from home for the last two and a half years, clearly that's not the case. So um, how will employer uh, employers respond when when the employee says, well, why am I coming back? Well, yeah, I think that, you know, that's 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 it. Exactly. If the answer is, well, because I'm paying, you know, uh, you know, I'm paying a bunch of rent on office space and I want people mm -hmm. in it. I think the employer is going to go, yeah, but hold on a second. I mean, you know, look, uh, un unquestionably, uh, the other side of this is that employ employees at home are saving money right now. I mean, yeah. they're not driving to and from work. They're not spending money on public transit, if that was the case, and they're not paying for parking. They're not potentially buying lunches or things downtown. And and we're in a particular environment right now economically, Scott, as, as I think we've talked about before, Saving a few dollars these days is not something to be trifled with. And so mm -hmm. I think, again, this goes to the point of employers really have to say, 
look, we've, we've been looking at this and here's where we feel from a performance standpoint or from a productivity standpoint, or maybe from a team, like a, a, a brainstorming and that collective uh, enterprise when we're together in an office, we get, we get some real benefit. Those are going to be the calcul. Those are going to be the uh, uh, points that I think employers are going to have to make to their staff to say, here's why we want you back in the office, whether it's full time or at least more often than the current case. But, but just to say, well, because that's the way it was and the pandemic's over, I think you may run into a problem. Uh, so let's talk about, and you know, obviously this affects, uh, and you brought this up, I'm paying rent downtown, I got this office space, I want it being used, I want some brainstorming going on here. Uh, what will this do to the downtowns? What does this do to the footprint of these large headquarters? Well, you know, certainly I, I'm situated uh, in the heart of uh, downtown, you know, Winnipeg, Portage and Maine, and uh, we're we're not near the the kind of uh, you know capacity in terms of the uh, the workplace and, and people, the offices being full, and you're you, know, you see it reflected, and I and I, I dare say you know Winnipeg's not alone. Lots of lots of large urban centers, and our survey basically came up with that that. Um, we asked people how they feel about the major urban center closest to them. How do you feel the downtown's going? And 45% of them say it's declined. Hmm. Um, 10% say it's improved and 28% say it's did the same. Um, I don't have context for that, but, you know, my sense is, is that some of that is due to the, you know, just sort of the, the, the pandemic having really, you know, restricted economic, you know, activity downtowns. And now, um, we're starting to see some of the, uh, you know, some of the impact of that is businesses are having a hard time, even if they're open and, and open for full business, there's not the full, um, you know, there's not the kind of foot traffic and population to make some of these things, uh, mm. you know, viable as they were prior to the pandemic. And, and uh, that that's, I think that's the challenge for, you know, for downtowns and makes this a really complicated problem when we talk, think back to the back to work thing. And who knows where this goes in the next year or two or in the short term when we figure it all out. Andrew ends with us, sure. Executive VP at Leger's Winnipeg office, their new survey from Leger 360, returning to work and how it is affecting downtown cores. And a lot of it, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. It is, uh, uh, thank you so much, Andrew. Much appreciated. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, the great thing about uh, the summer of 2022 is we're just talking about... them luring us back to work uh but things are starting to open up meaning festivals and concerts and and things that we've been certainly lacking at full capacity or in some uh full service form for the last two and a half years uh and uh the great news is lots of people are using this as a chance to expand canada's wonderland uh already of course in the middle of their 2022 season and now telling us what they've got planned for 2023 which uh includes another ride that is sure to shake the lunch right out of you uh, to talk more about all of this grace peacock is with us director of communication for canada's wonderland and with us now grace thanks for the time i hope you're well oh hi scott yeah i'm great thanks for having me so first of all how's biz this year uh i mean obviously you like uh, many in the same situation have been suffering during a pandemic what's it been like for you this year this was a great year for all of us. We were celebrating because it was the first sort of return to normal for us. We got to open up on time in the spring. 
uh, end of April, actually, and um, it's been a full season. We brought back our events. We brought back all of our live entertainment. Of course, we weren't able to have that last year. We had a late start last year. We weren't open at all in 2020. So this has really been just just getting back to business, and um, certainly we've seen I think a lot of families, a lot of guests eager to get back. It's been a very busy season, and I think the demand is there because people are just wanting to, you know, start making memories again, right? You're out of your house. You want to do something fun with your friends and family, and uh, we're happy to uh, provide that here at the park. So you've got the, you're getting the feeling a lot of pent-up energy. We're seeing this with travel as well. People just want to get out and get back to normal and do something fun again. Oh, yeah, definitely, for sure. It's been, um, like I said, a very busy summer. We usually, July and August are usually our busiest months, but even in June when the schools were still in, uh, the park had high attendance. It was uh, people were bringing their kids playing a little hooky. <laughs> I know I did it with mm. mine, uh, just because you're eager to get back on the rides and, um, and have some excitement in your life. So uh, we're happy to continue that excitement through the fall this year and winter. We've got uh, Haunt coming back for Halloween and our Winterfest programs coming back. And then, yes, today we announced two new rides for next year. So talk about these rides and, uh, yeah, like... <laughs> I've just seen a drawing of this, and I can imagine what it's like. So describe the Tundra Twister. Yes, and you know what? Even the drawing doesn't do it justice. You have to imagine. I'm sure. Okay? (laughs) This thing will swing 360 degrees upside down. So if you ever, if, if for those folks who, who came to Wonderland back in the day and you remember Jet Scream, that was a ride. We don't have yeah. that here anymore, but it was that rocket ship that sort of swung back and forth and then finally went upside down. It's similar to that kind of motion. It does eventually go 360, but then the gondolas, that's what we call the arms where the seats are, those are going to be twisting back and forth. So you're going to be going head over feet. And then, as well, that arm, that bottom arm where the seats are, is it's going to be spinning around horizontally. <laughs> so, literally every way that you could be spun, <laughs> Tundra Twister is going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, so, uh, when you're doing something like this, what do you learn from being off for a year, whatever? I mean, obviously, the planning continues. you still got to grow the park. There still has to be business after it's all over. What do you learn? What do you do during your time off or during a pandemic? Uh, what happened at oh. Wonderland? Well, I mean, a lot of it was just trying to be ready to pivot at any moment because um, there was a lot of uncertainty, obviously, at the time as to what when we'd be able to open and what that would look like, you know, with all the restrictions and things. So, um, you know, trying to mobilize that way, but then also being ready for our guests when we finally were able to open. It's always been a priority of ours to offer something for everyone. So, um, you know, as you see, we've got Tundra Twister, which is going to be the big thrill for, you know, the older guests. Um, but we've also got coming up a new coaster for kids and families. And um, so that's just part of the deal. And we're always looking ahead and planning for future years. So we may just be talking about 2023 now, but we're always doing strategy for like 10 years out. So making sure we've got uh, a little bit of everything for people. Man, you wonder how much bigger this place can get. Uh, what? Uh, who goes there? Is it? Are they tourists? Is it locals from out of town? Ta- who, who's, who, who are the visitors? It's, you know, mostly GTHA. Um, and we see a lot of families, um, but also teenagers too, and especially in the summer after school's out, you know, mom and dad get them the passes, and then they come and hang out at the park for the summer. We become the mm-hmm. um, de facto summer camp. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a mix of everyone, but it's not so much international travel this year, um, I guess obvious for obvious reasons, but um, that's never really been our big audience. It's, it's mostly, like I said, the GTHA uh, demographic that we've got coming. 
All right, so uh, anybody who's thinking of going before the season's over this year, tips for going to Wonderland, what do you need, what should you bring, what do you do? Well, a big a big thing, um, because of the pandemic, we actually extended those 2020 and 2021 passes, but those are going to be coming up to expire on Labor Day this year. So we've just launched our 2023 um, passes. There's an opportunity to renew, and that includes not only visits all next year, but for the rest of this year as well. So it's a big reminder to people if your passes did get extended to look into that. But otherwise, we're open daily until Labor Day, and then we switch to weekend operation, and our Halloween programming kicks off the end of September. So Haunt's going to be coming back. We'll have details on that in a couple of weeks. And then uh, mid-November to the end of December, we have Winterfest, our immersive holiday event, which is which is a lot of fun if you haven't been. So... Um, yeah, all the details are on our website. Plan ahead. Take a look at where you want to go. Our map's online. Uh, we have a mobile app as well to help you get around the park. Everything's digital, of course, these days. Canada's Wonderland.com to find out more. Grace Peacock with us, Director of Communications for Canada's Wonderland. Two new rides coming next season. Grace, thanks for the time. Good luck this season. Great. Thanks, Scott. Hope to see you at the park. We talked about this yesterday. I don't want to continue to beat this dead horse, but we've got Steve Jordans with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, wanted to get his take on uh, all of this. And uh, before we get into this, I, I, I just want to express I'm with the 90 plus percent Canadians, uh, 90 percent plus that that uh, that all agree that that uh, climate change is a very serious issue that we should all be addressing. It's something that we have to get a handle on. Uh, I think where Canadians in people around the planet differ is how to get there. Uh, one thing that really frustrates me in this discussion is when extremists um, e- either don't believe in it or just believe in shutting off everything. And uh, I'm going to play a portion of a caller again, which we used for the last word the other day. And it's it's a great call, and it's how a lot of people are thinking. But again, to me, it's just it embraces the, the hysteria, which I think is taking us away from the real discussions. Listen up. I should take exception to what your economist said earlier. He said that people may complain about carbon, but they know they can't shut down the economy for it. And that is so very, very wrong. If we don't deal with carbon and deal with it now, there will be no economy because everybody will be dead or they'll be living in some post-apocalyptic hellscape. The water wars have already started. We got to deal with carbon and we have to deal with it now. I don't care what it costs. We have to deal with it. Um, I'm old enough to remember the world was coming in to an end because of war, because of nuclear war, because of famine. We couldn't feed the world. Pollution, lake pollution, air pollution, leaded gas, energy crisis, acid rains, acid lakes, shrinking ozone layer, dying rainforests, and we continue to move forward. Why does it sound like the 1960s uh, all over again? And is this extremism? Uh, stopping us from getting to a true solution. Let's bring in Steve Jordans, Professor of Psychology, University of Toronto. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, by saying this, I, I, I don't want to, you know, downplay this issue. It's a very serious issue. But man, uh, I'm tired of hearing that the end of the world is coming and we can't solve these problems. Yeah. Well, first of all, great to be with you, Scott. Thank you for the invite again. Yeah. I, I mean, it really is the case that we we want to feel empowered all the time and we kind of need to feel empowered. And when we start saying, you know, something's 
the end of the world and the end of the world is upon us. That just breeds hysteria and emotional kind of approach to something. And we need a real rational approach to this. We have to understand the seriousness. And I, and I agree with you, you know, we're, we're among the people who agree this is a serious problem. It does need solutions. But yeah, we cannot paralyze ourselves with fear or, or with apocalyptic visions, quite literally, as, as we we're hearing there, uh, because that gets in the way of what we need to do, which is to solve the problems. So how do you balance the protest, the cause, with reality? I mean, it, it just seems that, again, the extremists that say shut it all off are, as, are, are no different than the extremists that say that none of the, they're in denial. None of it's going on. Yeah, uh, I mean, the denial, if we talk about the den denial people first, I mean, the tricky thing with them, or, or not even the denial people, but there's another group of people that kind of say, you know what, it's too late anyway. <laughs> it's, we, we, that, that ship has sailed, that we're on this one-way street, and uh, we're going to see where it leads. You know, when you have a lot of these thinking, they, they make you seem to not want to do anything. Um, if, if you either think it's too late, it's already over, or there's no problem to begin with, you know, that's what we really need to avoid. We need to be trying things. We need to be thinking about things. I sometimes think in this issue, we think too small. Um, you know, I, I, I think there are big things that we should consider. And that's almost more in line with that caller that you had, where, you know, he is, despite his drama and, and the, the apocalyptic vision, I mean, he is kind of saying, hey, let's, we have to get serious about it because there mm -hmm. are serious consequences. We're seeing it. And we may have to make some real personal sacrifices. Um, along the way to do that. So I think that mindset's okay. As long as we keep feeling like, okay, so what are those? Let's figure them out. Let's come up with a plan of doing this and let's move forward, just as you say. Uh, it seems that we're looking for action before we've found a solution. In other yeah. words, it doesn't matter what the solution is. We have to stop doing this now. And I think that's where we lose a lot of people. Yeah, and and there is this notion of um, learned helplessness, and it's an, it's a very important notion. I think we've talked about it before on the show. But the idea is, if you try to solve some problem. Um, several times and you feel unsuccessful, that you didn't get anywhere, you can reach a point where you start saying it's not worth trying anymore. This is the work of Martin Seligman. And that's the problem if you try to solve a problem before you actually have a solution. If you just try yeah. to do things willy-nilly, then the chances are pretty good that those things are not going to have a very significant impact. And so what this is going to leave you with is this feeling like, well, we tried, but that didn't work. We tried this, but that didn't work. And then at some point you can get to a, well, why, why are we even trying? You know, what's the sense? And so that's when I think we really do need to start with that notion of, you know, what are the big things that we could do? And there are some big things and they do challenge us. Like I'll throw one out there that, that I know um, that many people will go, ah, which is many people have argued that the single best behavioral change we could all adopt um, for the environment would be to give up eating meat, to go to a vegetable-based diet that in fact, a lot of the things that are causing problems with the ozone layer come from factory farming and all the waste of factory farming and it adds up to more pollution than all forms of transportation combined that's a un report and so you know you could tell people hey if we could all transition to a plant-based diet that would be a huge thing that would be more than turning off your lights but you know as soon as you say that everyone's gonna be like what yeah. completely change the way I eat and everything. And that's a major sacrifice, right? And so we really have to understand 
is this true? What, how much of an impact what this, will this have? What are the things that could work? And what are we willing to actually pursue as, as a society to, to solve this problem? But we need what those can, solutions. What, yeah. can we lose, what can we learn from the past? What can we learn from solving uh, issues uh, in the past? Um, uh, you know, like I remember, and I've used this example before, and we're almost out of time, but we, um, yeah. 1970s, all in the family, the two kids wanted to have a baby, and the, you know, the <laughs> husband's arguing, we can't bring a baby into this world there's so much hell into this world there's no yep. you know the yep. end is coming and it's like that's what we're living all over again yeah i mean we, we have this part of our brain called the amygdala and its job is to search for threats and orient our attention towards them so it's it's there to keep us alive but it does mean that we do have this natural tendency that when we see something threatening we orient towards it and we often see it as as bigger and and worse than it is and so just as you say all through life you know whether it's the cuba missile crisis or or whatnot everybody has felt like the world is about to end so yeah i think we can take some comfort maybe in saying when it comes to climate change that's more of that and we have been able just as you suggested to hobble along to where we are now that doesn't mean we have to ignore it but it it does mean we shouldn't we shouldn't let that emotional reaction dominate our approach we have to try to let our frontal lobes do their thing and problem solve there you go steve jordan's with us professor of psychology university of toronto dealing with the hysteria of a world in 2022 steve as always thanks for the time be well thank you scott you too you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, earlier on in the week, uh, breaking you the news that uh, the news to you that uh, Gord Lewis of Teenage Head uh, has in fact left us. Uh, the coroner has confirmed that uh, the victim of that murder was in fact Gord Lewis. That is some new information that has coming out, that has come out. Although uh, the rest of us sort of assumed that was the situation and have been trying to digest this uh, information ever since. Uh, let's bring in Graham Rockingham, former music journalist from the Hamilton Spectator, retired now. Graham Rockingham is back on the show. Graham, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well on such an unfortunate situation to be speaking with you today. Yes, uh, thanks, uh, Scott. It's good to be back in the show. It's uh, The shock is uh, slowly wearing off from uh, what happened on the weekend. Great what were your first thoughts when you heard this news? My first thoughts, it was, I mean, it, it was shock. It, it, it was shock, and it's still there a little bit. Um, Gordy, Gordy was a buddy, um, and, uh, and to have this happen in such horrible, tragic circumstances, to lose him that way, I mean, I, I can't imagine what the family's going through. The Lewis family is a very tight-knit group. There's, you know, seven siblings in all. There's six brothers, I believe. So, um, and I can't, and, and, and this is within the family. Uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, uh, almost impossible to comprehend. Another tragic chapter to what has been this band's life. I'm, you know, I heard one commentator saying, if it wasn't for bad luck, there'd be no ba- there'd be no luck at all. It's just a ma- it's amazing the tragedy this band has been through. It has, and, and, and this city too. I mean, it's not. Mm. I mean, we, we we lost Boris earlier, another uh, another friend, and, and through again horrible circumstances, and yes. 
teenage had had some bad luck, but uh, they always seemed to spring back. I mean, uh, there was the tragic accident in uh, in the early 80s, just as they were going to hit it big in the States. Uh, uh, they put, basically put Gord, it was a van accident, and uh, it put Gord in the uh, hospital for a year, and he was in traction most of that. Mm. And so they lost that opportunity back then, and uh, and 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 then of course uh, the loss of Frankie Kerr, the lead vocalist, in 2008 to cancer, which really had such a huge impact on Gord too. Um, I don't think he ever fully got over the loss of his uh, closest friend and bandmate. These these guys go back. I mean, the, 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 this band started out not just in the high school of Westdale, but, you know, in the hockey rinks of West Hamilton and the baseball parks. These guys mm. grew up together. Um, when, when Gordon and I talked music, you know, we talked about the most, it seems, as I remember. We, used, we were baseball buddies. I mean, we, uh, when he was living on Lock Street, mm. we used to get together and uh, watch the Blue Jays at the West Town. And, but when we talked music, we talked about the monkeys. Believe it or not, that Gord always said that band had the biggest impression, left the biggest impression on me. He would have been like ten years old when the Monkees were on TV, as I was, and uh, and it was just, and he was just captivated by it all. And he, you know, the idea of of a, a band of four brothers, you know, or, or brothers in music and, and brothers in rock and roll, getting together, in, enjoying life. Uh, making a party of it and 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 becoming rock stars, you know. This is what was. This is and they taught. They basically taught themselves how to play all the music mm. and how to write music, and they did it in the basements of Westdale, and uh, and so, you know, the, the tragedy. Forget the tragedy. Remember the legacy because. Um, there's a lot of good music there yeah. and produced. I, I, I rate those first three albums, particularly Frantic City in 1980. Those are three of the best rock and roll musicians that, or albums that ever came out of this country. And, and Gord was such a huge part of it. Um, his, he had a tone and a power in his guitar playing. You, you know, you, you hit one chord and you know it's, it, mm. it's Gord. And 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 that's something that all the great guitarists of rock and roll have—that power, that tone, that identifier. And uh, and he, his guitar filled a room. It, it just, it, it was just, it was a wonderful thing to see. I mean, I, I I've seen so many great guitarists over the years. <laughs> I'd have the privilege of seeing Gord play in places like the St. Hollywood and the Casbah, things like that. And and it was just sort of like. Wow! <laughs> wow! What's this guy doing here? He should be, uh, uh, he, he should be on the stage at Cops Coliseum or something. So, so yeah. Are you surprised that uh, the band is going to honor the dates and keep playing for the short term anyway? I think I was at the uh, at the beginning, but in a way, they, or they had set up to bring with uh, bring Trent Carr. He's the uh, Lead guitars for the Headstones and another uh, a band that was big in the '90s, 
And and Trent was brought in for this tour that they had set up that they were looking forward to so much um, uh, across what, in, in Western Canada, a few dates here, um, because um, Gord had chronic problems with his wrist. Yeah, it was like a carpal tunnel uh, uh, um, uh, problem. And so he, and I believe he had surgery not long ago. So they were bringing, they were bringing Trent in his help anyways. I think Steve, uh, the bass player and, uh, and founder, um, the only uh, uh, founder left with the band now, um, I think he wanted to do it in Gord's memory, fill out those shows that they were signed up to do, including Care Fest in, uh, Fest in Oakville on September 10th, I believe it is. Um, wow. And, and, and I think, you know, it also gives fans... Mm. And they, and there's a lot of them out there, and they were they were undergoing a revival, um, a, a, a chance to say goodbye, you know, and say thank you, and uh, and pay tribute to uh, Gord and Frank. Graham Rockingham with us, uh, former music journalist uh, from the Hamilton Spectator. We've had on the show many times and, of course, ta- uh, commenting on this band uh, several times, the passing of Gordy Lewis of Teenage Head. Graham, as always, thank you so much for the time. Pleasure having you back on. Be well. You too. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Inflation. We talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, hitting uh, its its uh, uh, largest rate in, in, I believe, like 40 years, um, up over 8%. Uh, and we're used to, you know, 1% in the last several years, uh, and all of a sudden, boom, post-pandemic, here we go. Uh, the price of everything through the roof, whether it's energy, groceries, such. But now we're seeing that uh, things like lumber, wheat, and oil are coming down in price. Although, that being said, uh, we're finding out that gas prices are going to go up another $0.08 cents, uh, tomorrow. Where are we on the inflation front? Let's bring in Eric Cam, Professor of Economics with Toronto Metropolitan University and is with us now. Now, Eric, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure. I hope you are as well. So, uh, uh, you know, we've seen gas tumble a little bit, although it's going back up again uh, tonight by uh, $0.08. Cents. Have we seen this uh, bit of inflation peak? Is it cooling down at all? What is your crystal ball telling you? Well, as you know, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. And if anybody tells you what's going to happen with precision, you run like hell. And I say that with respect to everybody listening in Hamilton and London. But I can tell you that, no, we're not finished with inflation yet. I mean, you can't be too excited when you see one or two prices fall. Because remember, Scott, inflation is remembered by, remembered, is measured by a basket of goods, an aggregate basket of goods put together by StatsCan. And so you can see one or two prices fall, and, and they happen to be important prices like the price of gas. But you have to remember that on average, prices are not falling yet. So not to sound like a math person, but what you're seeing now are increases at a decreasing rate. In other words, things are still going up, but they're going up slower. So just like we didn't get to this mess overnight, we're not gonna fix it overnight. And so I'm not prepared to say we're at the at the zenith of this or I'm not prepared to say we've hit our maximum. But I do think those price increases are starting to slow down. But 
I'm just one person. The real people to listen to will be on the 6th of September when the bank gets together and they decide, are we going to raise interest rates further? And that'll tell you exactly what the people who actually make the decision, that'll tell you where their headspace is. Uh, the prediction is they will raise rates again. Is there any reason to think that they won't? No, they absolutely will raise rates again for the reason that I just said. We're mm -hmm. still rising. We're still increasing. Even though those increases are a little bit slower, increases are still increases. And so uh, for two reasons, that's number one. Number two, the United States is still raising rates and we tend to do what Big Brother does. And so now, I, do I expect it to go up a full percent? No, probably not. I think we're back probably to the 50 to 75 basis points. But again, if you have a mortgage and you're renegotiating or you're trying to borrow money for a car or really for anything, another 50 or 75 basis points is not inconsequential. You're still talking another about $300 a month, say, on a million dollar mortgage. And we know, Scott, that sadly, million dollar mortgages are not that rare today. Uh, how much of this, and we heard, especially during the, the midst of the global pandemic, uh, the tensions in the supply chain and, and just systems not working as smoothly as they should be. How much of this is still in regard to supply chain issues? Some, but not all and not the majority. I know that people on the political left would like us to believe this is all supply based and not a problem of aggregate demand and spending. But the reality is, if you look at the statistics and you come at this from no political bias, like I don't have a political bias, the reality is this is still mostly a problem of pandemic spending on the part of the government. It was too much money printed too fast facing too few goods. And so unfortunately, while there is the demand and supply element, the truth is, is that this is still mostly an aggregate demand driven problem. It is the supply chain isn't helping, but it is not the primary cause of prices going up as far as they did as fast as they did. What about housing? How much of an indicator is this? Obviously, we've seen with increasing uh, interest rates that markets have slowed down uh, 20, 30 percent in some scenarios. W what part does housing play in all of this? You know, housing plays a big part. But you have to remember that when you have increases in the interest rate, it's the most volatile sectors that tend to react the strongest. And housing is a volatile sector because houses are very expensive compared to other goods in the economy. So Things are working the way the Bank of Canada hoped they would work. They raise the interest rates and you want to see some markets cooling down more than others. And housing is, of course, at the top of that list. The market was overheated for a very long time. So, you know, it doesn't take more than reading an economics textbook to figure out that if interest rates are go up, the price of houses are going to come down because people don't have the money to borrow for houses. That reduces demand. But again, I would really caution people to say, don't look at the housing market and say, because it's down, the problems with inflation are over. Again, housing prices, while significant, are only one thing in that aggregate basket of goods. Unemployment rate still historically low. How does that fit into all of this? Well, unemployment rates are really the most interesting statistic right now. Uh, they're low because of post-pandemic hiring. Uh, but the problem is, is that it's a balancing act, Scott, and it's a real razor's edge. 
is that you've got this inflationary spiral happening right now. And we're concerned because what we don't want to see happen is that we don't want real GDP to start to fall. And if it falls, it could fall fast. And then you're going to have a spike in unemployment. So what you have now is really a delicate balance. Unemployment is kind of where it should be, but it's surrounded by a bunch of other volatile numbers. So I would like unemployment to stay where it is, but for that to happen, rates are going to have to go up and spending is going to have to come down, but not to such an extent that it goes so far that GDP moves in the wrong direction. And if this is getting confusing, it's really confusing. And this shows you just how complicated capitalist economies are. Eric Cam with us, Toronto Metropolitan University economics professor, where inflation is in Canada today. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Always an honor. Stay healthy, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have talked over the course of this global pandemic uh, just how much effect mental health-wise and other ways, uh, economically, what have you, uh, that a global pandemic has had on individuals, whether you are in the healthcare industry, whether you are in the hospitality industry, uh, a frontline worker of some sort. But what about farmers? Have you thought of their life recently? Uh, COVID-19 and the rising cost of doing business sowed the seeds of anxiety and depression on Ontario farms. Researchers at the University of Guelph uh, found higher rates of stress and emotional exhaustion and burnout than in the general population. This amongst farmers. Uh, Burford farmer Larry Davis, director of the Ontario Federation of Algri- uh, Agriculture, not surprised by the findings. He says farming is stressful at the best of times. One bad harvest can scuttle a year's work as uh, well as fuel, fertilizer, and other inputs get more expensive. Farmers are feeling the pinch as well. Larry Davis with his Ontario Federation of Agriculture, representing Brant Haldeman and Norfolk, and is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I'm doing fine. Thanks. Thanks for asking. It's a sunny day, just as you mentioned, and uh, sun is always good unless we need rain. There you go. Are, are we making life easier or more difficult for farmers? We always talk about how we have to preserve our farms and, and, we, and the family farm and such, but are we really doing enough for our farmers? Are we making life easier or more difficult, does it seem? Well, that's a very good question. And, you know, right off the bat, I'm going to say uh, farm life is very rewarding. But on the other hand, uh, the we that you talk about, uh, the consumers and uh, general public, it, it seems are making things very difficult for, for farmers in that uh, they're scrutinizing everything we do. We have activists out there that are, that are trampling onto farms and invading barns and uh, looking at our livestock and telling farmers what to do. <laughs> We're in. Farmers have been doing this their entire lives, and they do know how to look after livestock. So we don't know why other people would be coming in and say, oh, you're doing it all wrong. No, uh, farmers know how. So it's, uh, it's rewarding, like I said, but uh, there are challenges. What is the recent issue regarding fertilizers? What's that all about? Oh, good question. And here again, uh, there was an announcement by our government, and I respect our governments, no matter where they are or which level they are. But uh, they came out with a, due to climate change, and rightly so, the, uh, the impression they put across to farmers was that we're losing nitrogen into the atmosphere, which is contributing to, of course, global warming. Well, uh, farmers have been on the ball on this long before the government said, wait a minute, you're causing a problem. Uh, farmers don't want to lose 
expensive fertilizer to atomization, whatever you want to call it, from the ground. So they they have adopted a lot of them have adopted a program called 4R. It's the right place, the right source, uh, at the right time, and the right product. And if that is all followed, then we mitigate a lot of the problems that of losing losing our fertilizer and uh, not having it for the crop to use. Now, when the government first came out and said this, farmers t- took it, I, I'm going to say farmers took it wrong. They said, oh, no, we can't reduce 30% of our fertilizer program because that would then reduce our yields of whatever crop we're growing, be it vegetables or animal livestock feed, whatever crop they're growing, uh, and it would reduce the outcome of that crop, or the, the, the production of that crop, and they, they really got anxious and upset. And then it took a few weeks before they realized that, no, the government isn't telling them you can't use the fertilizer. It's that the government wants you to search for ways to reduce the emissions from the nitrogen that you put on your crops. So it's, it's not all bad news. Farmers are taking it on the chin as far as climate change is concerned. And uh, it, 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 there's really a lot of things that we've done in the past to... Uh, we've observed global warming for decades. The temperature is rising, the storms are changing, weather patterns are changing, and we've observed that. And most farmers have found ways to deal with it and, uh, you know, create less uh, carbon into the atmosphere. So uh, farmers are on top of it. Getting back to mental health of farmers, you know, many would think this is, you you know, uh, you're out in nature, you're away from the hustle and bustle. This is hardly a stressful life, but this is still a business and a business that relies a lot on nature. Talk about the mental health of farmers. The mental health of farmers is connected to, just as you say, the weather. The farmer's out there by himself most of the day. Uh, His workload starts when the sun comes up and quite often doesn't end when the sun goes down. His workload is over across many hours, uh, especially during cropping seasons or uh, calving seasons or lambing seasons, whichever one it's going to be. But on top of his mind in all that are his finances. Okay, is this crop going to be able to be something that I can sell? Is the world going to want this product? Am I going to have a disease in it when it's ready to go go to market? And am, am I going to lose it? Not only that, but he's got increased cost. The the products that he's buying to bring into bring onto his farm, or even the machinery he's using, the parts he's using to keep the machinery up to date, all those costs have gone up. Quite often, the truckers bringing it in say, "Oh, by the way." I have to put on a surcharge on the fuel to bring this into your farm. Well, on the other side, when we ship our products out, they're going to fuel surcharge us again to ship Mm -hmm. our product out. So we take it on on both ends. We're kind of caught in the middle here into a price squeeze. So there's all the increased costs. There's, There's the backlog of parts, as I mentioned. There's the cost of fuel. There's the cost of fertilizer. And on top of that, as I started right off the beginning, the consumer has a demand that that says, you know, it's got to be perfect produce every time, perfect cut of beef, perfect pork chop, perfect eggs. Everything has to be perfect. And the farmer wants desperately to deliver that. So it's a big it's a it's a very big load on the on the farmer. Now, being out there alone all day here, we have uh, humans in general, our social creatures. And they like to get together and chat about things. 
On one side, the farmer's very independent, but we're all, we're all social. And this COVID-19, the, the periods that we've been through for the last couple of years, has you know made the farmer and the communities so they can't get together and have discussions, have meetings. Lots of times through the winters, there's meetings for farmers to attend, educational meetings, of course, and those things weren't happening, and it was very stressful for the farmers. Larry Davis with us, Ontario Federation of Agriculture, representing Brant Haldeman and Norfolk, uh, talking about today's farmer and what they're going through and the mental health uh, awareness and illness they are experiencing as well. Larry, is uh, thanks, uh, thank you so much for the time at Insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Obviously, uh, the Justice Department moved today to unseal the search warrant used by federal agents to seize documents from former Donald, uh, former President Donald Trump in Florida. He said, the Attorney General, that he personally approved uh, this extraordinary step to seek the warrant and um, went on from there uh, and, and, and how they went about doing it, uh, trying to at least giving some balanced information uh, from what is coming out of uh, the Donald Trump camp. Of course, he's using this to fundraise any time his name is in the spotlight. That's what the chief objective seems to be. To bring this all into some sort of perspective, let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Are you surprised to see the Attorney General, hear the Attorney General Merrick Garland come out and qualify uh, what he has done and lay this out for the public? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it, it's rare for the Attorney General simply because uh, there's such longstanding Department of Justice policy to not discuss any kind of investigation, especially political in nature, so close to an election. Uh, and we're 90 days out from the midterm. So it was surprising. But at the same time, uh, it wasn't surprising given the kind of um, rhetoric that has been thrown around about FBI and DOJ from Republicans and supporters of of Donald Trump over the last few days, Merrick Garland felt it necessary to come out and stand up for the work that his team does. Uh, But also, um, you know, as we heard from the AG earlier, the whole reason that he had to come out in the first place is because Donald Trump publicized this. Had had he not done that, the media wouldn't have been aware of this. The DOJ wasn't talking about this publicly. This would have been nothing had it not been for Donald Trump's statement that he put out. And Donald Trump would have been free to have released this information on his own accord. Is that accurate? That's from 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 all the legal experts that I've heard and spoken with. Uh, Donald Trump could have released this this warrant and this affidavit on Monday during the nine hour search that was taking place at Mar-a-Lago. And I think you know, it, it's a bizarre moment that the former president told people that he didn't have this warrant. He didn't have these papers when he very clearly did. And at least his legal counsel uh, had these papers. But all of this could have been brought out there. And I think what's kind of interesting about this, Scott, is, you know, having covered the entire uh, Trump administration, anytime news was about to drop, the former president would try to get in front of it and put it out there first. That didn't happen this time, so it raises questions. The speculation is there. What is he potentially holding on to that he doesn't want to be in the public's life? Uh, one Republican official was saying, well, if they wanted this information, why didn't they just ask him for it? But that's been happening for a while, has it not? They had already taken so many boxes out of there, and clearly there was others that he didn't turn over. Yeah, I mean, look, there's two things um, to look at when, when you ask that question. Number one, Republicans will say, well, why didn't they ask that? Well, reporting has already shown that subpoenas were uh, were already issued. There have been on- ongoing conversations between Department of Justice and Trump Council and National Archives 
uh, for the last year. And when the subpoena was originally handed out and 15 boxes were returned back to the archivist, why were the other boxes left behind? That's one question. The second question being, why did Donald Trump do this in the first place? In 2021, when he moved and he brought documents with him that had sensitive information, potentially top secret information, why did he bring that with him and let it sit at Mar-a-Lago for more than a year and a half? That's the question that Republicans are kind of not talking about right now. They're talking about the process. They're not talking about the core issue. Uh, we're also hearing reports that it was someone within the Trump organization that blew the whistle, that there were more documents that were still uh, in Florida. Is that accurate? I think it's interesting in that yesterday there was reporting that came out from Washington Post and from uh, Rolling Stone that said that the former president was concerned about you know rats or moles within his orbit that were potentially feeding information. And I mean, this comes from a former president who for a very long time, well back into his private life, uh, was concerned about what people said around him. That comes out yesterday. And today there is stories that there was somebody potentially feeding information back. And the reporting is that it could potentially have been a member of the Secret Service. And there has been some pushback on that saying, well, look, Secret Service is there to protect the president. Why are they potentially putting um, you know, somebody of, of the political world in danger. Well, at the end of the day, a Secret Service agent is still a member of law enforcement and has to report a crime. Obviously, this is not confirmed yet, but if it is a member of the Secret Service or somebody within Trump's orbit feeding back the information, that would kind of add an additional color to this paint-by-color picture um, of, of what Department of Justice is doing, what the process was to get where we are right now. Uh, depending on who you ask, some say this is it for Trump. Others say this is just the beginning, that, that this sort of thing works in his favor. Where do you see this going, Raichi? Uh, I mean, look, uh, this could go in any number of ways. I think we have to go back to 2018. When Donald Trump was president, he changed the laws about mishandling government documents as a way to kind of push back on the handling of Hillary Clinton's emails in 2016. He changed the law to change this from a misdemeanor to a felony. Uh, (laughs) And he may be caught up in his own law now. So where does this go? Could he face charges? It's possible. Could he face a fine or potential jail time? It is possible. But because he's a former president, that kind of muddies the water as to how the Department of Justice is going to move forward. Is this going to make Republicans back away from him? Probably not, because look at what's happened. You've seen uh, Ron DeSantis. You've seen Mike Pence have to come out and defend the former president. And this is somebody that they ultimately would like to be political rivals with. Uh, and go after him for the chance to be president, but they now have to back him up. So the Republicans are growing strong, but possibly by force and not by choice. It seems anything that may appear to hurt him in the end works in his favor. Is this any different? I mean, he's using it to fundraise. Uh, we weren't talking about him last week. We are this week. Does this all help? I mean, this, 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 you know, this is the narrative over the last five years of this, you know, then president and now former president is stay in the news, stay relevant. Uh, And I think that's working now. You're seeing that his base is rallying behind him. You're seeing that Republicans are standing up uh, for him. You're not hearing a lot from the former president himself. Yesterday, he kind of pushed back and sent a significant number of statements out against uh, New York's attorney general, uh, you know, in a separate fight over his businesses. Uh, But this this potentially could help him, uh, you know, going forward. This is a man who has had very few, you know, political hits that have actually stuck. You know, whether this one does, we have to wait to see, especially if he decides to blow the lid on this warrant and release it. 
his counsel has until tomorrow to to kind of push back and say yes or no to the Department of Justice. That could then blow this open even further. So it's a with Donald Trump, it's always a wait and see situation. Last question: Will we ever see his tax records? I mean, look, that was uh, that was given the okay for Congress to be able to get access to his tax records. That obviously is going to play into potentially a number of ta- of, of investigations, possibly including whatever's happening with the J6 committee. Uh, will they go public? You know, that'll be up to Congress whether or not they want to release that or whether or not it gets leaked. So the one step that it's potentially going to Congress is a win for them. Will the public see it? That's another wait and see. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. City Kids, a great organization in the Hammer, helping kids out for years, has completed phase one of a major outdoor revitalization project at their headquarters at 601 Burlington Street East. And coming up on this Tuesday, August 16th, uh, from 4 till 6, they'll be hosting an event to share the vision for the full project and celebrate key contributors uh, to talk more about all of this. Laura Carmichael, Associate executive director with city kids is with us now laura thanks for the time i hope you're well yeah thank you for having me it's exciting to talk about so uh for those that may not know tell us what city kids is give us a bit of history here sure so city kids as you said is in the hamilton area and we have been here for over 30 years and what we do is we have programs for children who are living in low-income neighborhoods within hamilton from the ages of three all the way up to 17, really centered around inspirational experiences, uh, which is programs that we're doing at our theaters with kids, as well as developing deep relationships with the kids. So what have you got going on? Talk about this uh, this project and, and, and the planning of it and, and getting to where you are now. Sure. So, of course, over the course of 30 years, you know, we're always listening to our kids and to our youth and always looking for ideas of how we can expand our programming and have even greater impact And so at this point in time, most of our programming has been inside in our theaters, which are incredible. But COVID, of course, really highlighted for us this need to expand that to be able to create outdoor spaces so that we can do more with the kids and that we can take the programs that we already have to an even deeper level. And so while the planning for this actually started many, many years ago, um, it really sped up in this time so that we can make sure that we can have programming uh, for them in the event that we have to be outdoors again. So this not only was a vision for City Kids, but something that uh, actually was sped up came to be due to the pandemic. It did. You know, it uh, it showed us the need and it created some urgency around it. <laughs> it's amazing how many organizations, companies have been through the same sort of thing. How many kids' to, uh, lives does City Kids touch on, on a weekly whatever basis? You know, Scott, we're so honored. We are involved in the lives of over 1,200 kids in the Hamilton area, and that's about 650 families that we're connecting with on a weekly basis. How difficult was it during the pandemic for you? Oh, incredibly difficult, as um, is the case for most organizations. The the way that we had done things, the programming that we knew all ceased to exist virtually overnight. And so we spend time uh, considering how to rebuild, how to continue to reach kids. And we didn't have a lot of time to do that. So maybe two weeks, three weeks to to change up. So we developed community-based programming where we've been providing family meal kits to uh, city kids families, as well as we put some of our youth programs online. But just this past year in May, we actually opened our doors to the theater again, and we were able to bring them back to our space. So we're really excited to have not only the indoor space for them, 
but to have them on site in an outdoor space as well. And demand is great as ever uh, now that everyone's back? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> We're seeing and a lot of excitement from the kids. <laughs> what? Uh, so give us a little bit more detail about what this outdoor uh, phase is all about. Uh, give us some sort of perspective here. Sure. So this is phase one of what's going to be really a three to five year project to transform our space here at 601 Burlington Street. We have about one and a half to two acres and we want to be able to create a space for outdoor programming. So we would be able to host summer camps here on site. When we have our children here on a Saturday, they can have some outdoor playtime. Um, when we have our youth events here, then we can create small group spaces outside. So this first phase is really just uh, creating a space outside that's large enough that we can have a group of kids, as well as doing due diligence work and making sure that we have everything in place to turn it into the magical place that we want for the kids. What's moving the biggest... Forward. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. Because <laughs> moving forward, as we continue to develop it, you know, we want to continue to do some more research, and that, of course, is going to involve hearing from our children and our youth about what they would find uh, to be really meaningful for them in this space. What's the biggest challenge for city kids right now? Oh, the biggest challenge that we're currently facing, which I think is similar to a lot of other organizations, is a need for volunteers. During COVID, we've seen the number of volunteers um, decrease by close to 50%, um, just people unable to connect with us in the same way. And so having people who would be willing to volunteer is our greatest need and our greatest challenge. And if they want to get involved, where do they go? Best place to go is to our website, which is citykids.ca. And what about funding, Laura? Yeah, so to run all of our programs, it is a... Uh, quite the investment. And so we are looking for people who would be willing to partner with us in supporting the operations of our programs as they're running right now, as well as the future visions and dreams that we have for reaching even more kids. All right, Laura Carmichael has been with us, Associate Executive Director with City Kids, completing phase one of a major, a major outdoor revitalization project at its 601 Burlington Street East headquarters. And they're going to have a little soiree Tuesday, August 16th from 4 till 6. Laura, good luck with all of this. Thanks for all the great work you do with City Kids. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to deliver the last word. Yeah, Spencer here. I'm just wondering, with uh, the raid on Mar-a-Lago and uh, Trump pleading the fifth in uh, New York court, how long until the former president invokes the ostrich defense and just sticks his head in a, in a dirt hole and pretends none of this is happening? Nighty uh, night. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.